Today on Dolby Creator Talks, we are continuing our coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards, this time with legendary cinematographer Edward Lockman, who has received his third Oscar nomination for the satirical horror film El Conde, directed by Pablo Lorraine. I am so thrilled to have Ed Lockman on the podcast today because I have been a huge fan of his work for many years. He has worked with so many great directors, including Werner Herzog, Jean-Luc Godard, Wem Wenders, Steven Soderbergh, and Paul Schrader. He is maybe best known for his long collaboration with director Todd Haynes, for whom he has made six feature films, two of which earned him his previous Academy Award nominations for Carol and Far From Heaven. If you haven't seen El Conde yet, it is a big departure from Ed's previous work. It's a horror comedy satire reimagining the Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet as a 250-year-old vampire who has lost his zeal for life. If that sounds like a wild premise, it is. It is also a very funny film, which is gorgeously shot, evoking classic horror films like Nosferatu and even the work of the great Orson Welles. I had so much fun with this conversation, which touches on both the art and the science of cinematography. But I started by asking Ed how he ended up collaborating with director Pablo Lorraine after following his career for so many years. Well, you know, he was a director. I, I, I saw some of his early films. You know, I think we met, we're trying to remember, it was either in, at the New York Film Festival or Telluride, but I was so taken that he was this, uh, South American director that that always always dealing with the social and political uh, context of his stories about Chile and it was primarily about the seventies and you know he did a film Tony Monero and uh, Post Mortem and No and uh, but he always found a different visual language to tell the story so he was highly. Uh, aware of how to tell the story that would uh, encompass what the content of the story was. And that, that's, that's always what I gravitate to with the director is that they're trying to find the language and I work with them to find the language of what makes that story unique in itself. And we became friendly and he said to me one day, we only meet each other at like a festival. If I had a film or he had a film and we were at the same festival. He said, you know, one day I'd love to bring you to Chile. But that was like 20 years ago, you know. And and then I was pleasantly surprised. That we did a commercial in, in L.A. And then about a month later, he said, would you come to Chile to shoot this film, this kind of gothic, you know, uh, noir expressionistic, you know, vampire film. And I go, wow, well, yeah. And it's about Pinochet. So how could I not say yes or no? Of course I would say yes. So I went to Chile and, and the remarkable thing, it was all in Spanish. I barely speak a few words of Spanish. I a crew I never worked with. Uh limitations and what equipment I had there, but somehow it all kind of fell into place. You know, once 
it was established that we were going to shoot truly in a monochromatic world, that he got permission from Netflix out of Mexico to shoot monochromatic and not shoot color and then transpose it in the black and white. That set the wheels, you know, like what's the best? We couldn't shoot film. We wanted to shoot on, on black and white negative, obviously. Um, which I've had some experience with. I'm not there and uh, other projects, but we were very limited, like where we could find the lab for black and white and the expense. So I reached out to um, a, a uh, optical and uh, mechanical engineer and cinematographer, a friend of mine, Marco Messenger in, in uh, Stuttgart. And, and I said, Pablo has a connection or has always worked with Airy. You know, I could look into the red monochromatic camera and do tests, but we had to have a lightweight camera for uh, this. He also wanted to always shoot on this 15-foot techno crane, and we built the set around it, too. He wanted the fluidity of the shot and, and to find the shot, you know. Um and uh, Airy had this XT and the 65 millimeter, but the XT was was not 4K; it was 2K. And, uh, the requirements of Netflix was 4K, obviously, and uh, so we were going to shoot with the LF. So the question was, could they build an LF with a monochromatic sensor? And um, Marco and uh, this contact we had through Stefan Schenk and also the man who actually made it happen in Airy was um, the, uh, uh, Manfred Yar. And the, I thought it wouldn't happen because they had built, they were building the uh, Alexa 35. And they hadn't come out yet. So I thought, no way are they going to have, you know, time to build a or put together a black and white sensor in the LF. But lo and behold, like we, we, we talked to them two months before, two weeks before I was to shoot. They said they had a camera that, but I would have to test. And I was pleasantly surprised. It came to Chile and I immediately started doing tests. And the native ASA, because of the losing the bear pattern for color, I could then shoot about three quarters of a stop over what they rated it. So if it was 800, that became 1280. 1280 became 2000. And I easily could shoot 3200 if I wanted. And it had incredible exposure latitude, which also was a great plus. And because a part of the story takes place during the French Revolution, I had the light things from fire and fire gags and at night. And so I really welcomed the extra ASA, the extra speed out of the sensor. But the incredible thing, so that was the first thing that I had a black and white sensor, a true black and white sensor for the LF. Then two, 
I had been working with Zero Optics and Alex Nelson in LA, um, who rehouses glass. And he had told me about this glass, the original Baltars, not the super Baltars that were built in the late 50s uh, for reflex cameras. But this was glass that was used for the, it's called the non-reflex or rock over cameras, where the whole movement of the camera would go out, you would have the viewing system, then you'd rack it back and you'd look at it like a range finder, you know. So this glass was originally for the non-reflex camera, and it had a shorter focal length distance from the camera mount to the film plane. So it couldn't be used in reflex cameras. Glass kind of went out of favor because people have been shooting with reflex cameras ever since. And now because of the digital cameras, you have a shorter focal plane distance that now you could use that glass. So now the problem was I had rehoused a set of the original Baltars. And those lenses, what, what, about what year would we be talking about those lenses were, were originally constructed? 1938. Wow. So all the white films in uh, like Magnificent Ambers were shot with this glass. Parts like a one or two lenses, Touch of Evil one or two of the lenses for Citizen Kane, and even the 40 millimeter, because they didn't have that in the um, Super Baltar set, and Willis used in um, The Godfather, the original Godfather. So, um, and what was the difference with the glass? Well, that glass was made with lead, you know, which we can't do today, and I think it refractory quality to it. And the coatings were totally different. They were very simple, one layer coating, and they were hand polished. So they have fall off a, a little like what the Cook lenses, the Speed Pancros also have, which I bet, but they only cover Super 35. But the fall off has a wonderful quality to it. You know, it's like now everybody wants to go back to old glass to like do anything to degrade the images that camera manufacturers are making these chips, you know, 4K, 6K, 8K. And then we all want to go the other way to create images that have a texture and a feeling and not make it so analytical. So, uh, he worked with me, Alex Nelson, and we found glass to complement the Baltar glass from the 40 millimeter down. And so it became a 21, uh, uh, 25, a 35, 40, 50, 75, 100, 135, and 152. So he reworked the glass and we found the way that that would complement what was already existing with the Baltar glass that we had. So now I had glass that was made for black and white photography or the glass that was available for black and white photography. Then the third thing was I could now use filters. I could now use black and white filters that I used on 
I'm not there and, and uh, parts of uh, wonderstruck and, and, you know, to, you know, you, you think you can do the same in post. And I work with Harbor and Joe Goller in, in New York. And, and when I was losing light, I had to pull the filters because you lose stop with, with filters. And we tried to recreate and we could almost get there, but you couldn't go as far as you could go with the filter because the filter marries, if I try to think about it, the flesh tone to the background. And when you just layer it, try to do it later, it's not the same against what you have in the foreground to the background. So th this was exactly one of the questions I had for you, Ed, because one of the things that so stood out for me about the look of the film is I, I felt like I felt like the characters were kind of bleeding into the environments, and there were the the skin tones were so fascinating to me that you know they, they they didn't pop off of the backgrounds like I'm normally I, like I'm used to seeing people look, especially like in a high contrast black and white look. It was so like silvery and gorgeous and so much texture to it. That has a lot to do with the fourth. <laughs> but did I get one, two, three? Yeah, the, uh, all right. So the fourth is the EL zone system. And this is something I've been working on for the last 10 years. And it was primarily something I was doing for myself because when the digital world came, I'm an old guy and I, I my background is film and I've learned everything about exposure and everything is how to control the negative. And I go back to like when I was a student, I was go like, how do I recreate that photograph or that painting in a motion picture? Well, of course, I was learning about Ensel Adams' zone system in where you can place the exposure from 18% and understand where you can hold the highlights or lose the highlights or where you can hold the shadow detail. I'm someone that likes to hold the shadow detail and the highlights and you find that mid-range of where what stop you place. It's what cinematographers do all the time, you know, is an average out to hold what expo what information you want. Well, I tried to work with this idea, like, couldn't that be done in the digital world? Because we have IRE, which if anybody I ask knows what IRE, they don't. Do you know what IRE is? I do not. I do not. IRE stands for the International Radio Engineers from 1895 when they didn't even have sound and they used it as a way of recording information about lightning from the International Radio Engineers. So Obviously, these brilliant technicians that made the digital cameras never thought about the analog world. They percentages, but the big problem is they thought in linear and not logarithmic. And what that means is if you go 2 to 2.8 in a film exposure, you need double the amount of light to make that 2.8. You need double that amount of light to go from 2.8 to 4. That's how our meters are set up. 
That's how our lenses are set up. And that's how we talk to a gaffer on the set. Well, guess what? Every time I would go to a DIT and I would say, it's F4, right? He goes, no, it's 5.6 or 6.3. Why is there a discrepancy between what my analog meter reads and what the digital information, you know, waveform monitors, IRE, faults, or which I call false exposure. And it's because of this idea that they go linear. So a simple way to remember it is 2 to 2, 8 is 0 to 10. Then 2, 8 to 4 is 0 to 10. They don't double the amount of light to understand what we traditionally understand as exposure. So you could say, I've talked to a number, you know, cameramen that are like, you know, on the A list. And I would say, well, they say, I don't use a light meter. I go off of the monitor. I go, well, that's great. But what happens if you could hit a button, record exactly how you've exposed the scene with a color pattern that represents 18% gray, which, hey, 18% gray is gray, not green, you know. And warm colors for overexposure and um, darker colors for underexposure. And on either side of the 18% gray is half a stop. Because for me, the most important part, and it was for Ansel Adams when he and, and Archer when they talk about it, is how you place the exposure on a face, because that's my balance the rest of my exposure in scene, you know, the face is the most important. And then I can balance the background, your white wall behind you, your books behind you. I can understand what the exposure latitude of that is. Well, what happens if you could hit a button, record what you've lit and come back a year from now and recreate it exactly the what you have. So they go, mm, I could do that. But for, other people, it's a great tool using your sensor as your light meter. And not all monitors are the same. You can have the same manufacturer with monitors, two or three different monitors, and they all read differently. This way, 18% gray is 18% gray. Even if the monitor is off, you have the same interpretation of your exposure. So there are many factors... Plus, in a documentary, it's very fast to see where your exposure is. So basically, it's it's set up for exposure. So to get back to El Conde. So what I was able to do was I felt like I was Ensel Adams on the set because I could now place the exposure where I had information in detail in the highlights to the shadow detail. And that's why the film has this incredible mid-range. Because that's what we're talking about is what everybody wants to know. How did I get the grays? I got the grays because of the EL zone system, Aries uh, sensor, and the filters. All three elements came together. Interesting. I, I, you know, I just thought of this is. There used to be a filter called the low light filter, an LLD, that they theoretically said you could shoot late day and it was easier to time it back. It was like, it was like a haze filter, but you didn't lose any stop. 
So I was using that in a lot of the interiors, and that may be added to the uh, look. And so how, how much of is this all part of your kit now? I, I know you you just shot another film for with Pablo uh, about Maria Callas, right? Is this is this all still stuff that you're continuing forward? I asked, hey, is there any way I could adapt the EL Zone system to film? But no, you can't. <laughs> no, I don't need to. But but it was like I was now so dependent on it um, that I, I it's funny. I thought about how do I use the L Zone system on film? But there's too many variables that would change. That's amazing. There's, I have so many questions for you about about the uh, about El Conde, uh, but I, I I've seen pictures of you on the set, uh, and you you and Pablo had a very interesting way of shooting some of those dialogue sequences. You know, you no no, no over the camera, no no over the shoulders uh, for you guys. I've seen the, so the pictures I've seen. You had two cameras facing opposite directions in between the actors. Can you tell, how did you guys arrive at that setup and what what did that gain for you? Well, that was something I learned from Pablo. That was Pablo's approach. And I think he's he used it before me, but yes, with digital cameras, you can, we tried to do it actually in this new film, Maria, but the film cameras are have too much width to them. So you're, but with the digital cameras, we could put cameras opposite each other. And obviously for a, a director, they love that because then they have that performance from both sides in one take, which, you know, other people, you know, two cameras over the shoulder, but you try to keep the other camera out of the shot. But this way you could do it. You didn't have to worry about seeing each other, you know, because it was right in the center of them. Then the question was for me, how do I light two people with these opposite facing cameras? But I went back to like using a China ball and I, you know, one China ball right or left of them want one China ball, but some people I used right, sometimes left. And that was enough illumination, for, and it was wonderful for the eyes. And I, I, that's how we did it. But that was something, that, again, I learned from his expertise and, and thinking, you know, always visually about how to tell the story, you know. That's, that's fascinating. And, and uh, so did, what was the reaction to the actors having these cameras? Like, you know, they were between each other. Did that affect, how did they get used to that in, in the performance? I, I, don't, I didn't see any problem for them. You know, all, all those films, I did want to say this, you know, on a philosophical, all those films are about uh, how justice is a collective desire and but that isn't always the case and how horrible crimes in history uh, d don't get the, don't get due justice. And that's really what Pablo's work has been about in Chile, about the inequality of what, what the seventies brought to the, the populace, to the people of Chile. And uh, you know, so it's not this traditional romantic procession of a, perception of a vampire film, but it's, it looks at how metaphorically and literally 
uh, blood is taken from the, 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 the politics, the culture, and the society, and uh, how a society can be seduced by fascism. So it's just this allegorical, satirical comedy in a way. But it's maybe a way to look from a distance. You know, you ask about, you know, the use of black and white. But if you think it's an, it's another way of, you know, unless you're colorblind, you don't see black and white. It's another way of abstracting the world and um, and giving a distance. And so... You can look at these people maybe a little more farcical. And, you know, the, the Chilean people have never been able to rectify the pain and the suffering many people went through and their families losing, you know, their loved ones. And um, so maybe th this is a way to help people look at it from a distance and maybe understand their own complicity in, in something like this. I, I, I thought Pablo's approach to the story was so, so ingenious. It was so disarming. I, I got to see, I got to see the film at Telluride uh, oh. with an, with an audience. And it was, uh, it, it's, it was surprising to me how funny the film played, you know, it is, it is a comedy. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm just curious for you in approaching that subject matter, this, this idea of, reimagining Pinochet as a 250 year old vampire. What did that immediately open up for you in terms of thinking about how you were going to design the look of the film? Well, that was all happening with the production designer and Pablo, you know, cause they knew the intricacies like here that he's living in, in refuge, you know, in this farmhouse with all these millions of dollars, but with bad taste. You know, the dining room tables with plastic chairs, you know, well, you didn't see it in color, but they were orange. Um, so he's making a comment about how tasteless, you know, they were, even with all their money. And how you, you wouldn't bite the children, but of course the children are like vampires trying to find where he's hid the money and he's going senile and, yeah, who are who? Who are the real vampires here? Yeah, exactly. They're all the same. I just you know wanted to say you know the Chileans never found justice or relief, and so in a way he lives on in their memory like a vampire because he's always there. He he was never tried for his crimes, and he died a multimillionaire. If if I if you'll uh, indulge me, there are uh, there are a few scenes that just really jumped out at me that I wanted to ask you about your approach to capturing because they were so, they were so remarkable to me. I'm, I'm thinking about um, the, the remarkable sequence with the kids going over in the boats uh, early in the morning. It's just so exquisite. Tell me about, tell me about capturing that sequence. He knew these locations. In fact, he had shot uh, an earlier film, Elma, Emma in that area, but we, we, we used a lot of smoke in the film, but shooting early in the morning there, you would have the, you know, the fog coming in over the water. And so that gave it an element. And also, like, the wonderful thing in Chile is if they don't have something, they make it themselves. 
and I probably had the best fog machines I've ever seen, you know, maybe because they don't have the, the restrictions we have here, but they, they, they built their own fog machines. They built filter holders for me, you know, I, I was just astounded about how resourceful they were on their own to find solutions to problems. So I think it had a large part to do with it. The time of the day we shot and the supplementing it with our own fog. I, I love the way, you know, that, that whole basement sequence. I love, you know, when the general goes to the glass case and his uniform is in it, he, you know, puts the uniform on and then goes for the night flight. Tell me about, tell me about uh, shooting that sequence. Well, I think that's a reference kind of making fun of the Batman sequence. Like he's the superhero costume in the glass case. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's a superhero evil case, you know? So, um, again, you know, like, you know, this tunnel and where they are underground and, and, had these air vents built overhead. And so I would have light with, and I used the cheapest kind of lights I could get there was, you know, was par cams, you know, theatrical par cams through tracing paper. And then I used practicals on the walls. Well, that's how I lit that one room was just to create that ambiance around the wardrobe and that the, the light that spills off of that case is what's illuminating them. Amazing. And then I, I love the sequence when the, you know, when the, the, uh, the, the young nun takes flight for the first time and is, is, is exploring that, that, that was just such a remarkable sequence for me. That, that was something uh, he saw. It was um, in a commercial, I believe. And uh, it was a, a group, uh, aerial and circus performers that had formed a company to do wiring wires and do flights for photographic and Pablo adapted it for, for this film. And the remarkable thing was um, the character Carmesita, she was in life was actually studied ballet. So she really wanted to do Paula. Her name was Paula Luxinger. She really wanted to, we had a stunt double, but the stunt double did maybe 20%, 15% of that. And she actually did most of it herself. And the way that worked was she was on the wire of a 90 foot crane and we had a grip holding a Ronin uh, base that was a remote control with the camera on it. And then the operator was below, Pablo was below operating off, off of the grip holding the remote head in position. And it builds a credibility and authenticity to where you are and what she's actually doing, I think. And the night stuff was done with blue screen. You know, and and so that had to be done with blue screen, and also we couldn't bring up, uh, you know, a eighty-year-old man up on the crane. 
but he was pretty agile. He was more agile than I was. You know, he was got around. You know, the feeling, you know, look, you can do everything in post, but the wind, the, 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 the light, uh, you know, everything, you, you, people get the effect like, wow, how did you do that? You know, there's an effect that you can't, and there's things that happen like a mistake or the way someone moves that you can't always build into post or, or uh, visual effects. If, if it didn't happen, how do you know how to do that? You know, I mean, that's what's so wonderful about shooting in reality is the things that happen that you don't anticipate. You mentioned something I wanted to ask you about, which is you, you said Pablo was operating. And I know that, yes, you your, your director was your camera operator as well. That must have been a very interesting experience for you. Tell me about tell me about how good as a camera operator is, is Pablo. He's excellent. He's he's always been around the camera, not just he studied still photography at one time and he's very good with wheels. And uh you know, they always say the first audience is the operator, and that's why I like to operate. But there was so much I had to do with the language and whatever that it was very direct that he could talk. Actually, the key grip, Momford, who's a wonderful key grip, didn't speak English. So he had the direct communication to the grip about moves and on the crane. So it made sense that he operate. And then that gave me the freedom to do what I could do with the electric because I had to be more hands-on than a gaffer I've worked with for 35 years, John DeBlau in, in New York. At one point I wanted to bring him, but he's getting as old as I am. So he was not into going to Chile, you know. Yeah. Tell me about the, uh, the grading process, the DI and your involvement uh, in, in that part of the filmmaking. Yeah, I, I, wor I worked primarily with a Joe Goller at Harbor. And, in New York? Uh, yeah, in New York. And uh, they just had been working with Baselight, and he's a big advocate of Baselight right now. And, um, you know, in some ways, you know, they always said black and white is so much more difficult than color. But in, in some ways, for me, I, I prefer black and white now because even the times of the day that change, like color temperature that you have to deal with, you don't have to deal with that in black and white. Black and white is just the exposure value of you can shoot late in a day or early in the day or midday. And if you keep the balance between the contrast, you can almost make it look like it's the same time. Not almost, you can, you know. When, when you shoot in film, you always have to deal with the color change temperature, yeah. of the temperature. And so I, 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 I really like black and white for that reason. Yes. Well, it comes through so clearly in this film. It's a remarkably looking film and congratulations on your Academy Award nomination for it. Well deserved. Thank you. That was like total surprise that this little film in Chile got this recognition from my, you know, 
peers who I, you know, so I, I appreciate that. And That's it's, great. It's been great for the film community in Chile. And Many thanks to Ed for joining us on the podcast today. Best of luck to him at the Academy Awards being held once again at the Dolby Theater in Hollywood on March the 10th. You can check out Ed's Oscar-nominated work on El Conde right now in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos on Netflix. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Netflix for helping us put this conversation together. Speaking of awards season, as I mentioned up top, this episode is part of our continuing coverage of the Academy Awards. If you'd like to hear more conversations with fellow Oscar nominees in this category and more, be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. Many of these awards are tough to pick, and we will continue to offer these in-depth conversations filled with unique insights into the world of each of these nominated artists, which may make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you are an Academy voter or you simply want to do better in your annual office pool at the Oscars. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, this is Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.